Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for May 2013. I'm Neil Orford and this is a wrap-up of the last month's intensive care literature. So let's start with the biggie, the Perceiver study. So this study, Prone Positioning in Severe Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, is a must-read. Published in the New England Journal, it looks at prone position in ARDS. So this prospective multi-centre, that's 27 French ICUs and one Spanish ICU, RCT, compared early prone ventilation to standard care in patients with severe ARDS. The patients were ventilated with ARDS for less than 36 hours before being enrolled in the study. After meeting criteria, they had a stabilisation period of 12 to 24 hours to allow for improvement before they were enrolled. So the treatment arms were, firstly, standard care. So this was volume control mode, 6 mils per kilo tidal volume on predicted body weight, titrated PEEP and FiO2, the usual ARDS type algorithm, plateau pressures less than 30 centimetres of water, and a pH aim of 7.2 to 7.45. The prone arm were proned within an hour of randomisation. They had the same ventilation strategy as standard care, and proning was ceased if the PF ratio improved at least four hours after they were returned to the supine position. So that is, they had to be stable for four hours on their back before they were deemed well enough and not to be proned again. Prone positioning was applied every day for up to 28 days. So the results. In the prone group, patients had their first session within 55 minutes, an average number of sessions of four and a mean duration of 17 hours. They were ventilated in the prone position for 73% of the time they were having prone sessions. So it sounds like, on average, the prone patients were turned within an hour, they spent 17 hours a day prone, and they had that for four days. Now, there was a reduction in the primary outcome, which was 28-day mortality, in the prone positioning group. And that's a mortality that went from 32.8% in the um, standard group and was 16% in the prone group, which is a hazards ratio of 0.39, p-value of less than 0.001 in favour of proning, a pretty impressive reduction in 28-day mortality. There was also a reduction in 90-day mortality with proning, 23.6% mortality for prone versus 41% for standard. Again, hazards ratio of 0.44, p-value of less than 0.001. There was an increase in ventilator-free days at 28 and 90 days of proning, and there was no difference in ICU length of stay, pneumothorax, use of non-invasive ventilation, or any other adverse effects. There was a decrease in cardiac arrests in the prone group. I'm not quite sure how to interpret that, as there was a decrease in mortality in that group as well, and it's not clear if that's the same outcome. So the areas of comment, the ICUs in this trial were proning units. So to be, in, to be included, they had to consider proning as part of their daily practice for more than five years. So that's very high-use established prone units. 
only 15% of the ARDS patients at the study sites who were eligible were enrolled. So it was a highly selective population with severe ARDS that persisted for more than 12 to 24 hours after stabilisation that were included. Patients were proned longer than in other studies. Now the editorial raises comparisons with PEEP, that is there's a similar sort of evidence base yet we don't consider doing zero PEEP or ZEEP trials. In addition, they propose that this trial will not be enough to result in widespread practice change. Now this could be due to perceived or real risks of turning patients, but also the view that proning is unnatural or too hard. So is it possible that it is unnatural to leave patients on their back? Is it possible that we ignore this therapy from now on because it is too difficult? Do we apply the same critical appraisal to all critical care intervention evidence? Or are we going to need a repeat RCT in other non-proning ICUs before we accept this evidence? This is an important trial and it'll be interesting to see how it translates into practice. So let's stick with the New England Journal of Medicine on to our next paper, Targeted versus Universal Decolonization to Prevent ICU Infection for the CDC Prevention Epicenter Program. So this pragmatic cluster randomised trial compared the effect of three strategies to decrease ICU MRSA colonisation and infection. The strategies that the hospitals were randomised to were, one, implemented MRSA screening and isolation, two, targeted decolonisation, that is, they got screened, isolated if they were positive, and then had a five-day decolonisation of MRSA carriers with twice-daily mupiracin and daily bathing with chlorhexidine impregnated cloths. Group three got universal decolonisation, that is, there wasn't screening involved, but everyone got decolonised with a regime that included twice daily empiricin for five days and then daily bathing with chlorhexidine impregnated cloths for their entire ICU stay. So they report the results in 43 hospitals, which included 74 ICUs and 74,256 patients. So there was excellent separation of treatment groups between hospitals. That is, they delivered the treatment they were randomised to. Universal decolonisation was the most effective strategy. The largest reduction in MRSA isolates occurred in the universal decolonisation group and the largest reduction in CLABSI rates, and that were all comma CLABSI, not just MRSA, was in the universal decolonisation group. The number needed to treat for CLABSI was 54 in that group. So the rationale for benefit of universal decolonisation includes the idea that daily skin wash has a protective benefits on patients from their own microbiota, the reduction of environmental microburden in the whole unit and the decrease in opportunity for patient-to-patient transmission. And also that by applying universal decolonisation, you avoid that delay between detection of colonisation and treatment. Of note, the CLABSI rate in the universal decolonisation group was the highest before the intervention. It was 6.1 per 1,000 compared to 4.2 in Group 1 and 4.8 in Group 2. In the 
universal decolonisation group it decreased to 3.6 so that's 6.1 to 3.6 per thousand catheter days uh, and the others are decreased to 3.7 and 4.1 the authors addressed this issue of that was a very high pre-intervention CLABSI rate and suggest that that was due to a random allocation of three of the four transplant centres into that group which seems like a plausible explanation. Okay, moving on. There were two oxygenation in preterm infant trials that were published this month, one in the New England Journal, the BOOST 2 trial, and the other one in JAMA, the COT group trial. Now, both looked at what is the best arterial oxygen saturation to aim for in extremely preterm infants to achieve the goal of adequate tissue oxygenation while avoiding oxidative stress. And they compared 85 to 89% saturations to 91 to 95% saturations in extremely preterm infants. So two similar trials. The BOOST 2 trial presents the results of three international RCTs in the UK, Australia and New Zealand, randomising 2,448 infants born before 28 weeks gestation to the two target oxygen saturation goals. The introduction is fairly complicated, presenting the progress of recent trials and the issues raised by a change to the oximeter algorithm that occurred during the trial as fewer oxygen saturations in the 87 to 90% range than expected were recorded in the UK study. So when they investigated this, they found a shift up in the oximeter calibration curve had occurred and a revision of the algorithm was provided. Analysis of oxygen saturation distributions showed that the revised calibration algorithm improved oxygen saturation targeting with clearer separation in oxygen saturation patterns between the two study groups. Pooled analysis revealed that among the 1,260 infants for whom the original oximeter algorithm was used, there was no significant difference between groups in mortality. However, in the 1,055 infants for whom the revised algorithm was used, infants with an oxygen saturation target of 85 to 89% had an increased rate of death at 36 weeks, 21.8% versus 13.3%, as compared with those with a target of 91 to 95%. The trials were closed early as a result of this. So this pooled analysis aims to address the risk of increased mortality with lower oxygen saturations. The findings were that in the 1,187 infants receiving the revised algorithm, the lower target group had a higher hospital mortality rate, the number needed to treat of 14. In the 1,261 infants receiving the initial algorithm, there was no difference. With all the data combined, there's no difference in mortality rate between high and low target groups. Low target groups had a reduced rate of retinopathy or prematurity and an increased risk of NEC requiring surgery or causing death. The authors conclude that the avoidance of targeting an oxygen saturation of less than 90% among such infants, according to readings on current oximeters, should be aimed for. The second extremely preterm infant 
oxygen saturation trial was the Canadian oxygen trial, the COT group trial. So the COT authors introduced us with a bit of a history of this. In the 1940s to 1950s, there was liberal use of oxygen and approximately 10,000 preterm infants were blinded. Randomised trials show liberal oxygen caused retinopathy of prematurity. In the 1960s, there was restricted oxygen use with arbitrary upper limits. In the 1970s to the 2000s, there were periods of liberal use alternating with restricted use. A UK study reported lower levels, reduced retinopathy, chronic lung disease, poor weight gain, and there was no increase in mortality. Since the turn of the century, there have been a number of RCTs that have looked at 85 to 89% versus 91 to 95%. And there's some conflict. The US trial, the support trial, showed restrictive oxygen therapy resulted in low retinopathy but increased mortality, while Australian and UK trials have stopped recruitment because the Liberal group had higher survival. This international RCT compared oxygen titrated to SATs of 85 to 89% versus 91 to 95% in 1,200 infants with gestational ages of 23 to 28 weeks enrolled within 24 hours after birth. They report no difference in the primary outcome, which is a composite of death, gross motor disability, cognitive or language delay, severe hearing loss or bilateral blindness at a corrected age of 18 months. So no difference in the primary outcome. They conclude with some advice on how to translate all these conflicting findings of these studies into practice. And that is, clinicians who try to translate the disparate results of the recent oxygen saturation targeting trials into their practice may find it prudent to target saturations between 85 and 95% while strictly enforcing alarm limits of 85% at all times and 95% during times of oxygen therapy. I'll leave it to you to work out what to do. A big nutrition paper was published last month in JAMA and this is the early PN trial, which is an ANZIC clinical trials group study. This prospective RCT adds important information to the nutrition and critical illness debate. The question is, Does the early provision of PN confer benefit to patients in whom enteral nutrition is considered contraindication by the intensive care physician? In real terms, when we're standing at the end of the bed looking at a patient who we can't start EN on for the next two days, should we start PN in the meantime? Patients meeting the criteria were randomised to early PN, which was an up-titrating algorithm to target, commenced in the first 24 hours, or usual care, commence EN when able, can start PN after 48 hours. They enrolled 1,372 patients over five years. And their findings were, firstly, the patient population was heavily represented by surgical patients, more than 70%, which on reflection is not surprising. This is triple A's, anastomotic leaks from the small bowel, people who are hard to feed enterally. In the standard care group, initial feeding varied. EN was 30%, PN was 27%, and unfed was 41%. In the early PN group, they received their nutrition on day one in close to 100% of cases, 
They got over 1,200 kilocalories per day and 45 grams of protein per day by day two. In contrast, the standard group took six days for 80% of them to receive nutrition and seven days to reach the energy and protein intake of the standard group. So that means this group of patients who you look at from the bedside and think, I can't feed them enterally for a day or two. In reality, it takes a week to get them fed. In the early PN group, PN commenced at a mean of 44 minutes. So they got their treatment arm early and effectively. So they got the treatment. The primary outcome, mortality at day 60, did not differ. So in early PN, it was 21.5% versus 22.8% in standard. Early PN patients rated day 60 quality of life higher. So that was statistically significant, but not clinically significant. Earlier PN patients had fewer days of mechanical ventilation, 7.73 versus 7.26 days per 10 patients times ICU days, and had less muscle wasting, and this was measured. There was no difference in ICU and hospital length of stay or infection rates. So in summary, in critically ill patients with a contraindication to enteral feeding, predominantly surgical patients, a slow approach, that is one week to establishing nutritional delivery, seems to be as effective as delivering nutrition parenterally on day one. Now it is possible that early PN results in improved muscle maintenance and earlier separation from ventilation, but the clinical significance of this wasn't proven in this study and remains unclear. Another early verse late trial was published in JAMA, but this one was about tracheostomy. So this is the TRACKMAN randomised trial. So does it benefit patients who are ventilated long-term to have their tracheostomy performed early? Now the argument for this is that early trachea allows less sedation, more rapid progress to spontaneous and unassisted breathing, maybe less VAP and shorter ICU and hospital length of stay. This UK trial randomised 909 patients who had been ventilated for less than four days and were predicted to be ventilated for more than seven days to early trachea, which was within four days, versus late trachea, which was after ten days if they still needed it. They found, firstly, that the tracheostomy rate was 92% in the early group. That's not surprising, they all, most of them got it, versus 45% in the late group. So that's quite low in the late group, and that was because many of them recovered or died or didn't need it. So in the early group, 14.5% or 66 patients did not receive an early trachea. And that was because for 31 they didn't get one at all and 35 got it late. The reasons for not getting it included death, recovery, instability, facilities were unavailable, etc. In the late group, 33 received a trachea before day 10 because of either the insistence of relatives, a clinical decision or investigator error. So what did they find? Well, there was no difference in the primary outcome of 30-day mortality, 31% mortality roughly in both groups. There was no difference in two-year mortality and there was no difference in median ICU length of stay in survivors. The tracheostomy complication rate was 5.5% in the early group, 7.8% in the late, 
uh, and 90% were performed as a bedside percutaneous technique, 10% by a surgeon in theatre. They also found that predicting patients who will be ventilated for another week at day four, or earlier than day four, is not easy. In the late group, only 45% needed a tracheostomy by day 10. So in more than two-thirds of the remaining patients, tracheostomy was not required due to recovery. So that just tells us it is very hard to stand there on day zero to four and work out who is going to need ventilation still by day 10. And that makes it hard to predict who might benefit from an early tracheostomy. So the conclusion, early tracheostomy should be avoided as it does not confer benefit unless tools to accurately predict the need for prolonged mechanical ventilation can be developed and the hypothesis of benefit tested. Interesting study. Another study in New England Journal of Medicine, and this one gets us back to the whole issue of nighttime intensivist staffing, which has been a hot area in the literature for the last year, particularly in North America. So the evidence to date suggests that benefit from nighttime intensive staffing may occur in ICUs without dedicated daytime staff or the high intensity or, as we would call it in this part of the world, the closed model. This prospective single-centre study in an academic ICU randomly assigned blocks of seven days to nighttime intensivist presence versus control, which was available by phone, and they did this for a year. They found more patients were seen at night by an intensivist in the intervention group, so there was a treatment effect. There was no difference in ICU length of stay, mortality or any other endpoint in patients admitted on intervention versus control days. So it didn't make a difference. They looked at the subgroup of patients who were admitted at night and there was no difference with them either. So in summary, this study supports previous evidence that nighttime intensive staffing does not improve outcomes in a high-intensity closed ICU model. So just so you know, what is this high-intensity closed ICU model? Well, they describe this as responsibility for the care of all admitted patients is transferred to one of two teams, each of which comprise one intensivist, one critical care fellow, six medical residents and one advanced practitioner, all of whom are typically present from 7am through to at least 6pm. Daytime intensivists rotated in 14-day blocks and three medical residents staffed the ICU nightly. The residents were expected to review all new admissions and critical care events with a fellow, an intensivist or both, in person or by telephone within one hour. The default ratio of patients to nurses in this unit is two to one, with a one to one for a medium of two patients daily. They're very similar to the Australian New Zealand model, other than we're one to one for all ICU patients. And finally, a study for all the musos out there. Effects of patient-directed music intervention on anxiety and sedative exposure in critically ill patients receiving mechanical ventilatory support a randomised clinical trial published in JAMA. We know delirium and agitation are a big problem for ICU patients and we know that ICUs are noisy, scary places. This study looks at the effect of PDM, patient-directed music, compared to NCH, noise-cancelling headphones, compared to usual care on anxiety in 373 patients receiving acute mechanical ventilatory support. Patients were on mechanical ventilation for six to eight days prior to enrolment, and they found that 
the music patients listened to music for an average of 80 minutes per day, while the noise-cancelling patients, it was applied for 34 minutes a day. The patient-directed music group had significantly less anxiety and less sedation than usual care. The differences between PDM and noise-cancelling headphones were less pronounced, with no difference in anxiety and a greater reduction in sedation frequency but not intensity in the PDM group compared to the noise-cancelling group. So this is the first RCT to look at non-pharmacological self-management of anxiety in ICU patients, and they used music or noise-cancelling headphones and showed some benefit. Well, that's it for Journal Club podcast for May 2013. Come to the website and read the articles and the abstracts and the comments yourself, or we'll see you next month. Goodbye.